You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Just in time for Pride, Chick-fil-A, the anti-gay fried chicken sandwich fast food outlet beloved of social conservatives everywhere, the Hobby Lobby, if you will, of hardened arteries. They made the news this week. Republicans in Texas passed a bill to protect Chick-fil-A from discrimination after the meanies on the San Antonio City Council voted to block a Chick-fil-A outlet from opening at their airport because Chick-fil-A finances anti-gay organizations and political campaigns. Outraged, Texas Republicans, outraged by this one example of a chicken sandwich being discriminated against, leapt into action, and the governor signed the bill, which is why, as of this moment, a fried chicken sandwich now enjoys more rights in Texas than an LGBT human being. And it's safe to say LGBT human beings in Texas have probably encountered more than just one example of discrimination. If bitter irony had a float in the Pride Parade, it would be the biggest year after year. And speaking of bitter ironies, Republicans in Pride, you might not think a company that makes a big hairy rainbow spackled deal about its support for LGBT people during Pride Month, during June, sponsoring floats, slapping rainbows all over their social media accounts, coming out with Pride-themed merchandise. You might not think that kind of company would donate money to a politician who opposed marriage equality or supported a ban on same-sex couples adopting children or regularly attacks trans people. You might not think that, but you'd be wrong. You also might not think that companies that finance the campaigns of anti-gay politicians would get perfect scores from gay rights groups. But you'd be wrong about that, too. Joining me by phone to discuss this disconnect, freelance journalist Judd Legum, author of the Popular Information Newsletter. Hey, Judd, how are you? Good. How are you doing, Dan? Good. Uh, happy Pride Month. So what is up here? We have corporations at Pride dousing themselves in rainbow everything. And you went and dug into their donation records and found out some of these corporations that are humping Pride the hardest are donating millions of dollars to anti-gay politicians? Yeah, I just got really curious about it because I I saw how much corporate visibility there was. Uh, I live in D.C., you know, in the, in the D.C. Pride Parade, but also just online. And I tried to take a pretty narrow view. So I looked only at corporations that were get, getting, a, getting 100 percent uh, rating from the human rights campaign and also – uh, donations by those corporations to politicians that got a zero on their congressional scorecard. And I found that nine of them, uh, and these are people who, so these are corporations, some of whom have, you know, rainbow logos on their Twitter accounts as well, um, had given over a million dollars to these uh, anti-gay politicians over the last just two years, just 2017 and 2018. So there's so nine corporations. Can you rattle them off for us? It's AT&T, UPS, Comcast, Home Depot, General Electric, FedEx, UBS, Verizon, and Pfizer. All right, so they've covered themselves in rainbows. They're sponsoring pride parades. They're also financing politicians who, who hate us. It's like someone saying, I love you. I support you. I just bought a knife for this guy who wants to slit your throat. Please accept my love and support. 
Yeah. And if you go through, and I tried to do this a little bit, you know, if you go through what that means, you know, what are politicians who get a zero? This doesn't just mean they're, they're anti-gay. This means that of the, you know, 20 or 25 things that the human rights campaign were looking at, they went the wrong way on every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you have people who are pretty hostile uh, in this group. And I think there's just a disconnect between the companies and I think they recognize that the LGBTQ community is really important, both as a source of customers, but then for many of these companies as a source of employees recruiting. Uh, but you don't see that reflected at all in their in their political giving. There's just a total disconnect. How is it that HRC can give someone a perfect rating uh, on queer rights when that organization, when that corporation is financing anti-gay politicians? I don't understand what HRC is doing here. Well, I did reach out to HRC and they did get back to me. And basically they just said, well, we don't, we don't consider that as part of our rating. I think they do consider if you specifically donate to like an anti-gay ballot initiative, but they don't look at donations to corporations. And they said, this is important research that will add scrutiny. So they're not really dismissing it, but they don't, they don't, consider it now and and maybe they'll add it because they have over the years changed the, the criteria to get a hundred percent they've been steadily raising it um but it hasn't reached this yet well, i hope they begin to take this into consideration i don't think it's good enough to say we yeah. take in we, you know we it, it is off your score you lose points on your score if you donate to an anti-gay organization or an anti-gay cause or, or ballot initiative but nothing off your score if you donate to an anti-gay individual who actually has political power that you're going to help put in office so they can exercise that political power and harm the gay community hrc needs to do something about that your analysis here this original research that you did into these companies it's really i i think something that's going to exercise people who are already annoyed about the presence of corporations at, at pride events and how sort of overwhelming and smothering the, the marketing at Pride has become. Yeah. And, and I think actually, you know, right now there's a lot of emphasis on their internal policies, which are important. But if you think about it, those policies might affect a few thousand people or maybe in this case of a really big co- corporation, it might affect tens of thousands of people. But the politicians who are in Congress, they're in charge of passing laws that are affecting millions of people. So if anything, these donations are having a bigger impact than their internal policies, where which is where the focus is now. Well, thank you for jumping on the phone. I think that the research you did is going to result in some changes being made. And these corporations that want to hump our legs so hard during Pride, no longer being able to, to donate money to anti-gay politicians. I think you're really going to change things with this research, Judd. Well, that would be nice. That's all. That's always what you're, what you're hoping for when you uh, spend some time on something. But I think, you know, the first step is just the information getting out there. And I, I'm glad uh, you know, you're sharing it with your listeners and uh, and hopefully, um, you know, people will be interested. Judd Legum writes the Popular Information Newsletter. Subscribe at popular.info and you should follow him as I do on Twitter at Judd Legum. Thank you so much, Judd, for doing this research, for digging into those forms and putting this out there. I think it's really important. Thanks for having me, Dan. All right, folks, you know what to do when you see AT&T, UPS, Comcast, Home Depot, General Electric, FedEx, UBS, Verizon or Pfizer at your local Pride Parade. Well, you could yell at their contingent going by. Be much better, much more effective if you got on social media and dogged them in their mentions and asked them about why. AT&T, for example, donated $2.8 million to 193 anti-gay politicians, UPS $2.4 million, and on and on. 
Can't have it both ways. You can't hump our leg at pride and then slip millions of dollars into the pockets of people who want to harm us. Can't have it both ways. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, you can download for free tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum subscription edition that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long, more guests, no ads. I brought on Stefan Deshaines, who hosts the Naturist Living Podcast, to talk about nudism and why people like me get so freaked out about hanging around and letting it all hang out. Stefan's on the Magnum, and yes, I remained fully clothed for the entire interview. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight cis man in my early 30s. I have a kind of non-problem problem that I'm hoping you can shed light on. So first, I love going down on women, especially if they're older than me, but either way, often gets me aroused, but I love doing so even when it doesn't. Um, second, I'm not all that into PIV. And third, I don't want to make any big commitments right now for various reasons. Um, so what I want is to have casual, affectionate hookups with women who like being eaten out. Now, in straight land, this occupies a bizarre liminal space where, for a kink app, it may be too vanilla, but for Tinder, it seems creepy to write, like, I want to go down on you in my profile. Like, a woman might see that and say, hmm, seems like a red flag. Um, I know you say if you want something, you need to hang a shingle and put it out there. Is there a way to do this in, like, a non-off-putting way? Is there, like, an app for this or a term I should be using? Thanks. Love the show. A year and a half ago, there were 2.8 million apps available for download of Google Play and 2.2 million apps at the Apple App Store. That was a year and a half ago, and there have probably been hundreds of thousands of apps added to those stores since. So I imagine that there could be an app just for straight guys who want to eat pussy with no PIV and no commitment. And if there isn't, maybe there ought to be one, because I have heard from plenty of women who want to have their pussies eaten but aren't interested in much else. There are women out there who don't enjoy PIV sex. They might have pelvic floor issues or they just might not, for reasons, enjoy PIV, but they love to be gone down on it. And the expectation most straight men have when they arrive at partnered sex with a cis woman is that there's going to be PIV. And that expectation that PIV is straight sex and straight sex is PIV puts straight women under a lot of pressure to have PIV sex whether they want to have it or not. And there are women out there who don't want to have it. So, yeah, hang that shingle. And I would encourage you to hang it in both places. Find some kinky hookup sites, put it up there, but also put it on Tinder, put it on an OkCupid, put it everywhere. And you will scare off women who aren't interested in that and you will attract women who are. And I think you should go with that older woman angle. You should let women know that you're into going down on and just going down on older women and you'll probably hear from some Older women in marriages where they don't get their pussies eaten who just want a little bit of that on the side so they wouldn't want a commitment either. You have a marketable skill set here and you're just going to have to over up and market it. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a gay 33-year-old male calling from the Northeast. I have a question uh, about being more sexually uninhibited. Uh, I'm currently dating an older man who identifies as a sex pig. And from what I've experienced, he definitely lives up to that idea and definition of being sexually uninhibited. It's very cool, very refreshing. It's exciting exploring my sexuality one-on-one with him. However, when out at a club, uh, I found myself getting frustrated towards the end of the night when he is kissing or groping another guy or seems to be encouraging another person or couple to hang around through sexual banter with them or physical acts. Um, The most recent one, um, we were dancing on the dance floor. 
my boyfriend sticks his hand down my my underwear, gets a really good whiff of my musk, and shares it with another person who is dancing with us. When confronted on this, he reports that nothing was going to happen and that he's going home with me, so what's the problem? So my question is twofold. One, am I overreacting? I kind of feel like I am, and I tend to blow things out of proportion, but I don't know how to overcome that. So the second question is, I can see how decreasing my sensitivity and insecurity to this uh, would help me overcome uh, overall and become more comfortable with who I am, uh, taking the power and weight out of sexual acts and just being more carefree and uninhibited while still respecting the person I'm with, with no harm truly being done. And I can see how a lot of it is just in my head uh, and the meaning that I'm placing on his actions or someone else's. So the question is, is there any literature out there that you might suggest that could help me understand some cognitive tricks to overcome and override some of these thoughts that have really been ingrained in me? So if I understand your problem correctly, you're dating this guy who's a self-identified sex pig and he likes to go to, you know, sleazy parties, sleazy gay bars and get piggy. Is that right? So... So I've known him for about nine months and I enjoy going out to the clubs and just the music, the vibes, a really good thing. He's very close and attached to me and we enjoy spending time together yet like halfway through the night, like he's getting kind of more comfortable groping in the past. He's made out with other guys and I've kind of told him I'm not comfortable with that. That wasn't part of something we had discussed uh, early on in the relationship. Do you have a monogamous relationship? Yeah, that was that's what was agreed upon, and I think we he and I have different definitions of what monogamy is. Mm-hmm. It would it would be uh, seem apparent. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I, and I I try to because I tend to date older men. I'm in my uh, early 30s. He's in his mid 50s, um, and I try to really wrap around uh, wrap, wrap my head around like is this me not having enough life experience and maturity and experience in the gay culture. And I'm just, I, I kind of go back and forth to beat myself up. This is a learning opportunity. This is something okay. for me to okay. well, let's grow let, in. Uh, let me jump in right there. There's a lot of experienced gay guys out there, um, your age, younger, older, who aren't into the whole sex pig thing, <laughs> who aren't into right you know, dancing all night or, or making out with randos in, in bars. There are a lot who are, but you can be a mm-hmm. fully comfortable with yourself gay man and not want to hang out in a sleazy bar with your monogamous partner and watch him make out with someone else okay. or watch other people grope him or, you know, have him encourage other people to grope you. You guys need to get on the same right. page about what a monogamous commitment means. I have never met someone who described himself as a sex pig and identified with that subculture who was in a monogamous relationship or wanted to be in a monogamous relationship is monogamy your idea is he agreeing to be monogamous to have you that was that was actually something that was agreed upon like before we started dating we were just like talking and we both expressed you know what is the ideal relationship type for both of us and monogamy was what was agreed upon and i've actually raised the same question that or concern that you just kind of voiced which is you know i know you identify as this i don't see how this and this can coexist that just it confuses the hell out of me and what does he say he's like no no no, that's what i and he tries to reaffirm that no that can and that does and okay 
And are you confident that he's not fucking other people? Yeah, I oddly enough, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm not. More... I'm not saying he is or, or has to be. There are people out there who make monogamous commitments and can honor them, however they identify, wherever they fall on the pig spectrum. That right. said, you guys need to get on the same page about what monogamy means in practice. Obviously, it means no intercourse with anyone else. But he mm-hmm. seems to, you know, be of the belief that you two should be able to go out as a couple and flirt with and grope and touch and make out with and share your dick stank with other people, get all sort of charged up together from other people's sexual energy and then take that home and fuck each other. But it doesn't sound like you're comfortable with that, that you don't want to have right. these interactions or want to watch him have these interactions with others. And that's where you're going to have to find some compromise. Mm-hmm. Because if that's really if that's where his piggishness gets to be expressed in just like being in a sleazy environment and sort of sleazing around a little bit, but not going home with anybody, not having an orgasm, not getting a blowjob, not getting fucked or fucking anyone. And he derives a lot of affirmation and sexual energy from that. And it's really important for his sense of sexual fulfillment. Can you allow that? Can you get comfortable with that? Can you enjoy that too? Right. Or is that something you need to let him go off and do alone? Confident that he's right. not going to get a blowjob in the back room, that he's not going to go fuck somebody in a car or get fucked by somebody else. Can you trust him out of your sight in this environment, pig that he is? I think just based on the experiences and kind of being blindsided, it's just right now that's a no. So more conversation would have, conversations would have to take place before if that were something we would go to in the future. Right. Him being able to go out right. alone to a place like this. Right. Do you enjoy anything about being in a big place like this and everybody being horny and piggy and then people heading home with their I, I, monogamous partners? I, I, I do. I'm a huge people watcher. <laughs> um, I tend to be, I, I just love it. I'm, and I'm also um, a therapist. And so I just love to just kind of take in the psychology of what's going on around me and the, the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, it's very, uh, it's exciting for me to be in the midst of it. So, yeah. It's interesting that you asked me for cognitive tricks to help you overcome your socialization and what you feel may be hangups that were pounded into you by the culture about this environment. How many times have you been, how many times have you gone to a place like this and he shared your dick stank with other people or made out with somebody else in this kind of party environment? Uh, he and I or yeah, myself? You, the just- two of you together. Probably the, the, the stank was once, um, <laughs> outside of that, <laughs> outside of that, uh, two times that he, I've, he's been groping and making out with someone else. And, and uh, each of those I've, times it kind of, you had a jealousy response. It, it made you feel insecure. It made you worried for your relationship. It, it was insecurity and jealousy at first. And then I realized like the last time that it happened, I was just like, it was just pure disrespect. It wasn't anything about me. It was just, it was uh, more of like, he knows how you feel about this. He knows you were uncomfortable in the past and now he's just being inconsiderate. Right. Okay. So this is a, somebody's going to have to pay the price of admission conversation. You two have to have, obviously this is important. <laughs> you would say to him for through your sexual expression, your sense of sexual fulfillment. Maybe this is what makes it possible for you to have a monogamous relationship. That you have this other outlet where you get these sort of low key, low bore, low stakes, sexual erotic interactions with other men, but not sex. And if that is crucially important and that's a non-negotiable for him, is that the price of admission you're willing to pay where you're going to learn how to let him do that. And 
the price of mission, you know, and, and he needs to pay you back in a way by being a little bit more considerate about your feelings when he does these things. But can you allow right. him to do those things and have your feelings? And, and I mean him checking in with you, him saying, I want to go make out with this guy for just a minute and come right back. Can I do that? And is that, you know, if you gave him a yes, if he said that, would it be a yes under duress where you were like, oh, I guess I have to let you, but I feel terrible about it. When you get back, <laughs> I'm going to have a meltdown and make you pay. Or can you give him a right. yes? It's like, thank you for asking. Yes, you may. I'll be right here. Don't be gone longer than 10 minutes. And if he can honor, you know, the 10 minutes and come back and don't get carried away, will that make you feel like your feelings are being taken into consideration in such a way that you get more comfortable with this part of his sexual expression and creating a space for it in your relationship where it's shared? It's something you two do together. That would definitely just be at least validating where I'm at in the relationship and, uh, and just, yeah, like you said, being very much more considerate of my feelings than he has been <laughs> prior to this. But if he comes to you and says, I want to go do this, and each time he does that, you're like, yeah, not tonight, not now, I'm not feeling it, maybe next time. You know, if you say, I can allow for this if you know, these things are done so that I know that my feelings matter to you even in this moment, you want to get carried away a little bit. Uh, and he does those things and you're still not okay with it, then it's obviously not a price of admission you're willing to pay and you guys need to either – Allow him to do this on his own because you trust him that it's only going to be banking out and getting a little carried away in a bar or open the relationship or end the relationship. Right. Because a sex pig might not be the right partner for you. Might have been a good adventure for you. Might have been a good partner for oh, the absolutely. last nine months. A relationship doesn't have to last forever for it to have been a success and for someone to have learned and grown. But sometimes, you know, people are with more sexually adventurous partners and what they realize is that kind of adventure, the adventures that this partner likes who's more sexually adventurous, isn't their kind of adventure. Right. And there's no judgment in that. There's no shame in that. Oh, absolutely. And I, I'm just trying to, if anything, take a lot less, put a lot, a lot less pressure on the relationship and just kind of just focus on the bigger picture of like life and personal growth and just say, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, whatever, whatever price of admission, I'm not okay to pain and vice versa and just being okay with, you know, moving forward in whatever direction that happens to be. All right. Well, good luck. Thank you so much for calling. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for pulling over. Hi, Dan. My sister has been addicted to meth for about eight years and she just recently has been clean for 108 days and that's really great and awesome. But my parents are pressuring me to force, like, to form a relationship with her that I'm not ready for. I told them that I need more time and that I don't feel that that's enough time to really be changed because she has been sober for two, three months before and has gone back. And she's caused a lot of pain and suffering for me and my family. And I told them that I just really need to have some space and take my time and I'll organically grow a relationship with her as she heals. Now my dad took this as like an attack and is now fighting me and telling me that I'm being judgmental and that I'm being a terrible person and how wonderful my sister is and how I, how my dad is my dad. And so I should do what he says. Mind you, I am a 29 year old woman 
And I just, I'm so confused. I'm pretty much getting to the point where I just want to cut him out of my life because he wants to control me. And if I don't do what he says, then he wants me to just leave. I don't know. It's just so confusing because like, I don't feel that that's enough time for her to really be truly changed, but he thinks that she is completely changed. So I'm just at a loss now and I don't want to lose my family, but at the same time, I can't be forced to have a relationship with someone who has stolen from me, lied to me and pretty much treated me terribly for almost a decade. So is it best for me to just cut my family off or should I just do what he says and force a relationship? I just, I don't know what to do, Dan. Your father can't tell you what to do. You are, as you said, a 29 year old adult woman. You get to make your own choices, including choices about who you're going to have in your life and who you're going to be in relationship with and have relationships with. And right now you're not ready to have the kind of relationship with your sister that your father would like you to have. And recognizing your father is being a controlling asshole here. Best possible gloss on it is your father thinks a relationship with you might help your sister stay sober. Been sober for 108 days. Your father thinks, and it may very well be true that the more people who reconnect with her, the likelier she is to maintain her sobriety. That said, it is perfectly legitimate for you to say, she's stolen from me. She's lied to me. We've had a terrible relationship for eight years because of the drugs. I'm hurt. I'm raw. I have feelings. And I am not ready for the relationship that you would like us to have. But is there a different kind of relationship you can have with your sister to mollify your father, but also to help your sister out a little bit, maybe you can text every once in a while. Maybe you can write her letters or emails and receive letters or emails from her and express your support while being clear about your need at the moment to maintain your distance while affirming her sobriety and what an achievement that is at 108 days to get off math. That is major. But for right now, you're not ready to be in relationship. You're not ready to be there for her as a sister in the flesh, always available, whatever it is your father's imagining, the kind of relationship he would like you to have with your sister. And if that's unacceptable to your father, well, your dad can go fuck himself. I imagine your sister would welcome even a small degree of contact with you. And that would be helpful, that small degree of contact as she struggles. And it's going to be a struggle after eight years on meth, it's going to be a struggle even 108 days to maintain her sobriety. But yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. You are an adult. You get to decide who gets to be in your life and who you're going to be in a relationship with and who you're going to talk to and who you're going to hang out with. And you should make it clear to your father that you're not going to see her right now. And if that's not okay with him, you're not going to see him either. One last word about your dad. Your dad is probably angry and he's projecting that anger. Anger he has with your sister onto you because she's in recovery. She's 108 days sober. She's vulnerable. The things she did, the stealing and lying, which I imagine she did to your dad as well and other family members, not just to you, he's mad about. But he can't express that anger to her and may feel that he never can express that anger at her because it could imperil her sobriety. So that anger is sort of floating around looking for a place to land and there you are, not ready to reconnect with your sister in the way he would like and he's going to direct all of that anger at you. You might want to say that to him. You might want to tell him that 
you think that's what he's doing and that is not fair to you. And he risks destroying his relationship with you if he can't manage his anger in an appropriate way. Hi, Dan. I am a 41-year-old woman living in the Pacific Northwest. I was raised by a very Christian, extreme Baptist religious family. So recently, my parents, and I'm divorced, I am single, I have a great boyfriend, we've been, deal- we've been dating for about six months. My parents recently went to a wedding for a family member in another state and asked me to watch their house for about three weeks. My boyfriend was excited to come over and I invited him over so we could have a place to ourselves. Uh, the first couple of days I was there, my boyfriend came over after work and we, you know, we made out once and then we went and had sex in the back room. Everything was fabulous. My boyfriend's awesome. Everything's going great. The next night, my boyfriend had a bad night at work, but I was there for him, gave him back rub in our living room. No big deal. I'm saying all this to say the following morning, I was in the living room at my parents' house where we had started our relations the one night and I'd given him the back rub and stuff the second and recognized that there was a camera in the upper corner of their living room. There was a camera and there was tape over the lights to not show if it was recording or not. I was very weirded out. They had never told me anything of the sort. So I thought maybe it was a baby monitor for when they had the grandkids around. So I threw a hat over it. One week later, I had a uncle just come back from the same wedding. When I was not home, he dropped my parents' car off at their house so he had access to their house. And he went in and unbeknownst to me, took the hat off of the camera. That night, it's <laughs> been a week later, but it was the first night I had my boyfriend back over. He came back over and we started making out again in the living room, went back to the bedroom had sex, came back out, and we were sitting and watching something, both of us just kind of passing out, when I looked up and recognized that the camera was uncovered. I was super weirded out. I recovered it. I told my boyfriend he was really weirded out. He was very calm, but he was very weirded out, so he never wants to be around my parents again, and I feel the same way. I am so not knowing how to handle this. Why wouldn't they tell me if they had this? I assume it was an Amazon Alexa camera because they have the Alexa and they put it in their living room. But were they, they must have been just checking up on me and they never told me it was covered and they wanted me to uncover it. I never even was informed it was there. I feel violated. I feel horribly like there was some voyeuristic thing going on because I like to walk around the house naked. So I covered the thing up and to come back and nobody's told me they had somebody else come in and uncover it when I've never even been informed it's there. I'm grossed out. I don't know what to tell my boyfriend. He's grossed out by my parents and I'm worried what this will do to our relationship. Wow. Crazy. This is a crazy situation, crazy circumstance. It sounds like you're making a leap though that I don't think is justified. Sounds like you're leaping from my parents have a security camera monitor in their living room so that they can check up on their house when they're away, even when someone's house sitting for them to my parents are perving on these videos are enjoying watching me walk around naked or making out with my boyfriend. And that's the reason for the camera. And the reason that they sent my uncle over, it seems to 
uncover the camera. You have a right to feel violated. Your parents, when they asked you to house sit, should have let you know that they have this security camera, not in the bedroom. They weren't trying to catch you having sex. They don't have a security camera at the bottom of the toilet bowl. They have a security camera in their living room. You had a right to know about that because you're an adult, 41 years old. You're house sitting for them. You're staying with your boyfriend. Adults with boyfriends who are in houses sometimes have sex not in the bedroom in the dark, but in the living room with the lights on and you feel your privacy has been invaded. And then what's up with your uncle showing up after you covered the camera to uncover it? If they wanted the camera uncovered, if that was a problem that you covered it up, why didn't they call you their adult daughter who is house sitting? Why did they send him over? I don't think it's because your parents are furiously beating off in their hotel room back at the wedding to these images of you and your boyfriend or you walking around naked. But it communicates a distrust that your parents don't trust you alone in their home. And if that's how they feel, they shouldn't ask you to house sit. So you need to have a bit of a throwdown with your parents about these shenanigans, about the camera being there, about you not being alerted or informed that the camera was there. You feeling violated because you walk around naked because you had sex with your boyfriend or initiated sex with your boyfriend. And you feeling violated because you were walking around naked and making out with your boyfriend on the couch in the living room which you would not have done if you'd known your parents could see. So you have a right to your anger here. But I don't want to round this all the way up to your parents are secretly perving on these videos. Your parents are being inconsiderate. And this was an asshole move. And they violated your privacy. And you had a reasonable expectation of privacy even alone in their home while you were house-sitting. And they violated that. And they have some explaining to do to you. In your shoes, I'd also give the uncle a call and ask him what the fuck that was about. Be pissed. You have a right to be pissed. And don't house sit for those motherfuckers ever again. Hi, Dan. I'm a 50-year-old straight female, and I'm calling because a few reasons. I separated from my husband about a year ago. We've been married you know, over 20 years, and it's the third time we've separated, and I don't see this working out this time. I'm pretty much done. He's in denial, but we're not going to stay together. But I also want to throw out there that aside from just the sadness and, and depression of being separated for the past year, I'm, I've also become perimenopausal. And that I think has just added to, you know, hormonal ups and downs and depression and hot flashes, which are absolutely debilitating. And aside from not having a regular partner, I also just have zero libido. And that is really unusual for me. To throw into the mix, I also have a colleague who I've been, you know, very flirty with for like the past two years. He's been wanting to date me, but because we work so closely together, I've always told him, you know, I would not you know, date him because I think it's inappropriate. We work too closely together. But now he's transferred to a completely different department and we're not um, working, overlapping at all in our work anymore. So he wants to start dating me. I'm still married. It's all complicated. I'm, you know, I feel like I should probably date him. I'm attracted to him, but I'm also like asexual right now. So 
I'm, I don't know how to get back into the dating world. I haven't dated or fooled around with anyone but my husband for the past 25 years. So I'm kind of like, I feel like I'm at the edge of a cliff. Many women, when they enter menopause, their libido tanks. Many women, when they enter menopause, their libido takes off. And some women, the libido tanks during menopause and then takes off after menopause. Some women experience vaginal dryness, which can make instill a kind of dread about sex, which becomes self-reinforcing, a negative feedback loop, which then makes a person not want to have sex and they talk themselves out of having a libido. But that can be addressed with prescriptions and hormones and you can talk to your doctor about that if you're concerned about recovering your libido. It's kind of convenient right now not to have a libido. You've left your husband for the third time, the only person you've been sexually active with for years and years and years. And so right now it's probably more convenient not to have a libido, not to have a sexual interest. might keep you from going back to the husband for the fourth time. And it allows for you to sort of get out there on your own, to be a, a single and independent person. But there's this guy, there's this guy you might want to hang out with and date. For two years you've been flirting with him. You probably don't want to have a discussion with him about menopause. You probably don't want to have a discussion with him about your libido. But you can say to him, look, I am in the process of leaving my husband and getting a divorce. I am free now in a way that I wasn't two years ago when we first met. You work in a different department now. It's okay for us to date now. And I might be interested in hanging out and dating, but that's it. It's going to have to be low expectation, but some companionship, some going to dinner, some going to see a, a, a movie, maybe a little bit of hand-holding, some intimacy I might be down for. But I'm not up for a full-blown swinging from the chandelier sexual affair. And you may find that that appeals to him. Not every man is just looking to stuff dick into <laughs> every woman. He may just be interested in you as a person and interested in some companionship or interested enough in you as a person and some companionship for right now at the time being to date you casually without any expectation or any pressure from him on you to be sexual. And then if you're dating him and you feel like you might want to be sexual, you can talk to your doctor about your options. If you're experiencing vaginal dryness tied to your menopause, medical interventions that can address that. And if your collapse of your libido is tied to hormone levels, adjusting your hormone levels with an intervention, if indeed you want to be sexual. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight cisgender male living in the Southwest. So my girlfriend and I are polyamorous. We've been uh, poly for about a year and some change. You know, there's been like hitches and everything, but otherwise we're doing really, really well. When we started poly, my kind of, I guess, really main evidence for doing it was, you know, so I could have sex with escorts because that's something I'd done before the two of us got together. And I was excited about, you know, kind of doing that again. Um, however, like recently, you know, I've gone on, out on a few Tinder dates uh, and things of that nature. And a couple of weeks back, I was on a date with this girl. And on the first date, you know, I just kind of mentioned like, you know, yeah, you know, I just got back from Vegas and I saw a couple of escorts and everything. And, you know, just because I felt like I should be transparent, her reaction was good. Like, you know, uh, the date went well after that. Like we kind of messed around in the car. Um, and so the next day, like, you know, she didn't text me back or anything. I was wondering what was going on. And so, Finally, she was kind of like, you know, um, the fact that you saw escorts or that you're seeing escorts right now is kind of bothering me just because I 
uh, Louise explained it at some point in her life, she had done sex work under not the best circumstances, like not being trafficked or anything, but just like really being in a state of desperate need. And so it kind of brought back memories. So I was like, I totally understand. You know, I, I get it. That's kind of a big ask. And, you know, later, like we patched things up, kind of extended, and like, I've never seen anyone who was underage. You know, I've never seen anyone with a pimp, you know, and pretty much everyone I've ever seen has nothing but good things to say about me. So we patched that up. We went on a second date, hooked up. So things are going well. I guess, like, my question is, in the future, is the first date too early to disclose that? Uh, I know that you talk a lot about people using good judgment and, you know, revealing certain things too soon being indicative of a person having bad judgment. But I just wanted to know, you know, do I have a responsibility to tell women that I could potentially be sleeping with, that I'm also sleeping with escorts? Or is it something that, you know, I could reveal perhaps at a later date, uh, but prior to intimacy? If you're in an open relationship and you're hooking up with other women and the understanding is at least at the outset that these relationships are casual and that you do have other sex partners, you're obligated to disclose to these women that you're going to have these casual hookups with that some of your other sex partners happen to be sex workers. Sex workers are women. You are sleeping with other women. That some of these other women are women who you hire and tip generously is irrelevant. That's not information that you have to disclose or need to disclose. It isn't information that you should hesitate to disclose. There's no shame in seeing a sex worker, but you're not obligated to disclose it. And it's the sort of thing that the very disclosure on a first date, even if the other person has no problem with you seeing sex workers, it's going to demonstrate that thing that I talk about all the time that I think is important that nobody else ever talks about. It's going to demonstrate bad judgment. It just the other person is going to think, even if I didn't have a problem with this, so many people might have a problem with this, that this guy may not have any filters or common sense that he would just blurt this out to me, even though I don't have a problem with it. I do, however, potentially have a problem with being with someone who demonstrates bad judgment. So it could really screw up a relationship for you or a hookup for you in that regard. Could put some people off the whole sex worker thing or others who aren't put off by the sex worker thing could be put off by the bad judgment thing. And it's unnecessary. You don't have to disclose this. As for this woman, the woman you disclosed it to, who did sex work under duress and hearing that you were seeing sex workers was mildly triggering for her, took her back to that time in her life when she was doing sex work for the wrong reasons. And we talk about this on the show a lot. We've talked about it with sex workers. There are a lot of people out there doing jobs they hate under economic duress. Sex work is a job that people sometimes do under economic duress that they do not like, requires them to make themselves vulnerable to other human beings in a way that maybe flipping burgers, a job people do under economic duress, doesn't. You can say to this woman, here are the steps I've taken to make sure that when I am with sex workers, I'm with somebody who's not only doing this for all the right reasons, but likes the job. And those women, those sex workers, they're out there. A lot of them are on Twitter these days. Seems to me there's a lot of overlap between women who enjoy doing sex work and women who are advocating for sex workers and sex workers' rights and themselves on Twitter. So that's a good place to start for people who don't want to get with the sex workers doing it under economic duress. But you can tell this woman, here are the steps I've taken. And maybe because she has personal experience and lived experience with doing sex work under duress, she can help you think through some other steps you can take to make sure that you aren't with someone who isn't enjoying the job. And that will make her feel more comfortable with you as a human being and a sex partner. 
But we're far afield from your question, which was, do you need to disclose this on a first date? And the answer to that question is no. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to dig further, to dig deeper into an issue that came up on the show a couple of weeks ago. A woman called because she was very concerned about a family she knew where the parents were nudists and were sometimes naked in front of their children. I don't see how that involved or implicated her in any way, but she was concerned. I wrung my hands a little bit too. Joining us now to talk about that issue, Stefan DeShane, host of the Naturist Living Show podcast since 2008, podcasting old-timer like me, also the owner of the Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park, and he's taught a course on public nudity at the University of Toronto for three years. Hey, Stefan, how are you? I'm great, thank you. That's an awesome introduction. I feel really important now. <laughs> <laughs> so first things first, nudism or naturism? Well, it's it's a cultural thing to a certain extent. Europeans uh, almost exclusively use the word naturist. Uh, North Americans tend to use more of the word nudist, and it's a long story as to why that happened that way. I prefer naturism because it's actually not about nudity. Uh, the movement, uh, and people are going, what do you mean? You guys are all naked all the time. But the movement wasn't about nudity. It's about accepting who you are and presenting your true authentic self and living a more natural life. And that's done through the tool of nudity, but it's not the objective. What's inauthentic about putting some pants on? Oh, oh well, you know, we, to, we use clothes for everything except protection. It's all about <laughs> status. It's all about rank. It's all about pretending to be something you're not. It's all because we're so uncomfortable with who we are in our own bodies. We just can't accept it. It's because somehow we've been taught that certain parts of our bodies are dirty and bad, which I don't agree with. So that's what naturism does. But a lot of, you know, you know we're a hierarchical species. We're, we're monkeys with big brains and shoes. And a, a lot of human culture is about status and sending signals. And sometimes it's not a bad thing to pretend to be briefly someone or something that you're not. That can be, I think, as liberating as taking all your clothes off. Sometimes dressing up as a different person, inhabiting that role, that can be very freeing. Absolutely. Well, dressing up is fun and doing stuff like it is neat. And that's what Halloween's all about. But, you know, <laughs> I'll argue with you that – it's Halloween all the time for the mainstream world because nobody is comfortable with their true self. They have to dress up. They, they need the clothes to make them. I can stand up in front of an audience of 500 people who is completely dressed, and I can be nude and do a presentation, and I will be confident, and people will feel that I'm confident because I don't have a problem. And I, I, I'm old, and I don't look great and from this traditional point of view, but it doesn't matter because that's not why they're listening to me, and I know that. Well, help me out here. Briefly, let's talk about the, the, the question the caller raised, which I thought was very odd. She's worried for the kids of these parents that she knows to be nudists or naturists because they are sometimes naked in front of their children. And she, who is not a member of this family, thinks that's inappropriate. How do you address those kinds of concerns from really uninvolved well, third parties? Yeah, it's a, it's a very common concern. Um, it's, it's, it is like people, especially these days, have this instinctual negative reaction when it comes to children nudity that it's got to be bad. But then you, get, you, ha you have to deconstruct that. And you have to say, well, first of all, um, why is, is nudity bad for children to see nudity? Is that, what does it do? And without getting into it because I didn't prepare for that, I can tell you that I have done a ton of research, and I looked at a lot of academic studies, and there is no evidence that children are harmed. 
if you think about it, you know, if we spend millions of years without clothes on and we manage to develop as a species, okay, so possibly we don't actually need clothes to raise children. It might work out. But, but, but wait, let me jump in. Culturally, yeah, okay. culturally now, nudity is a signifier for sexuality, for eroticism. And so yes. I do think some people are uncomfortable with adults being naked around children because typically, conventionally, in almost all cases, adults are only naked around other adults when they're being sexual. And so well, people, like I said, that's yeah, that's normal. That's that's what people uh, experience. That's what people expect. So that's why the reaction. But is it innate? Like when you are around children, are you turned on if they're nude? No. I hope not. I hope not, right? <laughs> no, let me just go no. on the record there. No. <laughs> there was a big pause there, but good. I'm well, I didn't, that's I didn't the right know. Answer. At first I thought that was a rhetorical question, but then you waited well. for me to jump in. The answer is no. <laughs> no, and and it isn't. And for most people, it isn't. It's not for me. It's not for most people. And so it's and not, it, how do you keep out of naturist environments those people for whom it is sexual to be well, naked that's around a child? Good question. And that's part B. Part B is when you go to a naturist environment, it's not like a school. It's the children are not left alone in the under the authority of a single adult. And when abuse happens, sadly, and happens, it happens in situations like in a, you know, in a church or in a school or in scouts or places like that. Where you, and I'm not saying that those places are bad or that there's a lot of problems there. There aren't. Occasionally, though, somebody sneaks in and causes bad, you know, terrible things, and you get all kinds of articles in a newspaper. But in a naturist park, you go with your parents, your family. Mm-hmm. How is anybody going to do anything? And so the children. If well, a lot of sexual would, abuse happens within families. Almost the majority of sexual abuse well, happens within families. And and I would guess that most of them were not nature's family, and they had their clothes on. I don't think clothing is preventing sexual abuse so, so far. If it did, I would agree with you. I would be the first person to say if wearing clothes prevents all sexual abuse, uh, let us stop this whole naturism thing. Right? That, that wasn't my argument. My argument yeah. was. Just as the presence of clothing is by itself not evidence that a child could not be abused in that environment, the absence of clothing is also not evidence or proof that a child couldn't possibly be abused in this environment either. It's not a safeguard either way. No, no, but the concern is not uh, that most people have is that somehow it increases the risk. And it doesn't. There is no evidence that increases the risk because in a naturist environment, you're, you're with your caregiver, with your parents. Assuming that there is no issue uh, within that family, that there's not some a, a, a trusted adult. Let's not even say a parent. Let's say a trusted adult, an aunt, aunt or a call or somebody that is going to be the problem. There's no issue whether they're nude or dressed, right? They, mm-hmm. It's a safe place. It's where they are safe. And in a naturist environment, you're with your family like you are anywhere else. Plus, it tends to be a very communal environment where people watch out for each other. And I will add that if people come in a naturist environment with the wrong intention, it's they're very uncomfortable. And body language becomes a lot easier to read because the body language is really obvious. Oh, my God. Uh, you, you know what I mean. I so. do know what you mean. I, I can't, you know, at a certain point I have to put my cards on the table. Like if my parents had taken me to a naturist environment when I was a child, I would have sued for emancipation at age six. <laughs> like, I, there's nothing that makes me more uncomfortable than nudity. <laughs> well, and Partic- maybe you particularly would be... my own. It's not about other people's bodies necessarily. I do not want to be naked in public. What you described, like standing up on a stage naked in front of 500 people, 
I will have to lay down on the floor of my podcast studio after we get off the phone and curl up into the fetal position for 10 minutes just to process that mental image and the fact that I projected myself into it because it terrifies me. Am I just a product of a naked body hating culture, even though I consider myself pretty sexually liberated? Well, yeah, because the two aren't related to each other, right? Um, there's lots of people who are sexually liberated who are still very uncomfortable with our bodies. That's, 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 that's what we do. This is how society screws up people. We make people uncomfortable and, and lose self-confidence because of their body. Body shaming is huge. And yeah, you know what you're describing? You're describing a lot of the symptoms of a phobia. Right. I, I didn't say I didn't invite you to go and do and stand up nude. We just talked about it. And you had anxiety just at the thought of it. An irrational fear is a phobia. It has a technical term, by the way, gymnophobia. That is the uh, the uh, DSM term for the fear of nudity because gymnos or is the Greek word for nude. Mm hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. Maybe if your parents, though, had brought you when since you were born, you wouldn't have that feeling. You know, you say you would because of how you feel now, but you are the product of your upbringing. I mean, we can get into a whole debate about, uh, and you what know, if I'm, learn. What if I'm completely comfortable with being the product of my upbringing? What if I don't well, look at my gymnophobia or whatever that word was, my fear of being naked, and feel any conflict about it? I'm completely at peace with the whole fully clothed at all times, including bedtimes, part of my <laughs> personality. Oh, you're a never nude, eh? <laughs> yes, I am. I am a never nude, except for, you know, showers and sex. Okay. It's a lot better. Shower is a lot better without clothes. I, I will agree to that. Although I've seen a lot of people in public pools now shower with their bathing suits on, which is not the way I was raised. But I'm, I'm digressing. There's nothing – if you're happy with who you are, then don't visit a naturist club. Don't look into naturism, right? That's okay. But to assume and to be critical of people who are naturists and raising their children this way, um, I would say you know, let's look at the facts and let's look at the evidence. And you won't find anything that says it's it's more risky or bad. And I will suggest that the most cynical interpretation of the research that's out there is that's actually good for kids. The most cynical interpretation of the research you said? Yes, yes. The most cynical interpretation of the research. Because research can always be uh, read in multiple ways, right? Because true academic research never go, comes out and says, yes, it's good or no, it's bad. And this is the problem we have with a lot of science now, people. Because science comes across as not always solidly in, uh, 100% in one position, people say, ah, see? There is, there is possible. It's tr not true. It's just a theory, whatever it is that they say. So the answer to the woman who called would be, for children who've grown up in a naturist home, nudity is normal and it's non-sexual. Yes. And you shouldn't project your anxieties with nudity, having grown up in a more conventional home, onto those children. Right. And, or assume it's bad for them. The, the assumption is that somehow it is bad for them, but it, it, that's not borne out by the facts. Um, and and that's, we, we have to get back in this society to a, a place where we look at science before we come to conclusion. Uh, common sense is sometimes based on our own experience, and that, that doesn't make it factual. So if leaving children behind, let's talk about sex for a second, if in naturist land, nudity is non-sexual, when you want to be sexual, is it a full suit of armor? Do you get super dressed up? What happens then? 
<laughs> yeah, secretly we get into our uh, tr- tents and trailers and we put clothes on, and, <laughs> uh, yeah, but when, when nobody's looking. No, it, you know, it's it's interesting that, and you must know this as a person who does sex advice. There's there's a lot of misunderstanding that sex is all about looking at nudity, and nudity is about sex. And if and one of the most common there's two common questions I get, especially from men, the, the, especially the first one from men is, what happens if I get an erection? And the second one, strangely enough, is the opposite. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my sex drive if I get used to nudity. Uh, if that was true, then after a, a few uh, incidences of sexuality with a another person, when you've seen them nude, it'd be done. That'd be it. But mm-hmm. of course, we know that sexuality is far more complex. It's in the brain. It's about a look. It's about a thought. It's about an idea. It's about a, ch- a, a whisper. Uh, you don't need nudity for sex. No, and sometimes uh, non-nudity during sex is hotter. You know, you talk about you know the ways people dress up to express power and, and control and dominance, and that's very erotic. There's a reason people dress up as cops and have sure. sex. There's a reason people put on prisoner uniforms and have sex. There's a reason people put on Catholic schoolgirl or naughty bishop uni- uh, costumes <laughs> and, and, and find them erotic. It's about playing with the power of those clothes and what they mean. And the sort of icon status of a lot of different yeah. sort of power positions in our society. We're hierarchical animals. And so, you know, when a nudist wants to get kinky, they dress up like a cop. Maybe. That's true. Maybe. Uh, maybe as, likely, as likely to play or, those kinds of power dress up games as anyone else. Yeah, they could. Absolutely. Because that's, I mean, I'm not against dressing up. I, I have uh, some nice clothes when I'm going to into what we call the textile world. And I'm going to an event that's about dressing up. Oh, I know how to dress. So, and I can dress so people think I'm more important than I am. That's there, okay. I know how to do that. There is a meme that you see flying around. And this will have to be our last question because we're out of time. There's a meme you see flying around. Uh, this is the future that liberals want. And it's usually some joke on, you know, an imagined utopian future where everything is just the way liberals want, where all the penguins are gay, basically. Uh, (laughs) What is the future that naturists want? Everybody's running around naked on the number seven bus? Well, of course, that's what we think would be ideal, but we realize that's not going to happen. You don't see people going Please, God, no. I don't want everyone (laughs) naked on my bus in the morning. But in the 1930s, when this movement first started, uh, there were academics and PhD writing who thought that by now everybody would be nude, that uh, you know that politicians would debate in the Senate nude because that's that was the way you were getting the most you know humane discussion level. Of course, that didn't happen, right? Thank God. Thank God. C-SPAN <laughs> is tedious enough without having to look at Mitch McConnell's tits. <laughs> I'm sorry, but anyway, but well, maybe that's my like discomfort with other people's bodies, including my own body. I want everybody in a tarp. Well, yeah, and, and I respect your choice, and hopefully you'll respect mine, and everybody else will as well. That'd be a better world if we could just all be who we want to be. Well, I certainly uh, respect your choice, and I, and I thank you very much, Stefan Deshane, for coming on the show. Where can people find your podcast? Uh, NatureistLivingShow.com, and it's on every platform you can imagine. Thanks again. Great talking with you. Thank you. Hi, Diana, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. I am calling with a question regarding the impending wedding season. Uh, that is just right around the corner, if not already begun. I am a cis hetero woman in their late 20s who lives in a small city in the Northeast. And I have been dating someone for um, a little under a year now, around 10 months. 
my partner moved to the city that we live in for me, essentially. Um, I am from this region of the United States, and he is not. Um, in that he recently moved here around five months ago, he does not have really any friends. Um, and I, while I would say he has not spent any time trying to make friends, he either mostly spends time alone or with me. I have only been here for around a little over a year, and um, while I have some friends in the region, don't have tons of friends in the city either. Uh, but he has spent time with my friends, friends from college, friends from home, and the few friends I do have from work. So he has a wedding coming up for friends of his that is actually down in the South and has been excitedly talking about it since the fall. And last night I brought a laptop over to his house to look at flights for me to get down there because um, while I had wanted to go, I can't spend as much time um, away from work. Um, he's probably going to drive and really, you know, visit some other places along the way and really spend his time. In that process, it became very clear that he did not want me to go to this wedding. And the reason that he provided for that essentially is that he is just really looking forward to the time and the opportunity to catch up with his friends and to essentially have time for and with himself. I was pretty devastated by this. I think, you know, there's just part of me that assumed that if I could go, I was going. He does have a plus one. It's a really casual, you know, outdoor campfire style wedding. And I also, you know, in the almost year that we've been dating, have only met one friend of his and for about half an hour. And to me, this felt like an opportunity to be immersed in his broader life beyond the just us one-on-one -on -one spending time together. So, you know, <laughs> instead I find, I find myself feeling that he just doesn't want that. I guess I'm wondering what you think, you know, is it reasonable for him given that, you know, he really hasn't hung out with any friends of his in four or five months to want to go to this wedding alone without me? Or do you think that it is indicative of something bigger, something greater of him not wanting to be with me and not wanting to introduce me to his friends. You've been together 10 months. You moved in together. In that time, he's met a whole bunch of your friends and coworkers. And in all that time, you've met exactly one of his friends. That's a problem. Either he doesn't want you to meet his friends or he does not want his friends to meet you. It's one or the other, and you're going to have to press him on it. There's nothing about your presence at this event that will prevent him from catching up with his friends. You're an adult. You can wander off. You can have separate conversations with other people. Presumably his friends aren't all going solo and stag to this event. They're bringing their partners or their spouses. And so what the fuck is up? And what the fuck is up with the fact that you haven't met anybody else in his life in the 10 months that you guys have been together? You're going to have to... Ask him some difficult questions and insist on getting an answer. You're not going to want to go to the wedding under these circumstances. You're not going to want to force him to take you to this wedding. You guys will have a bad time at the wedding if you go under those circumstances. You'll probably break up at the wedding if you go under those sorts of circumstances. So stop looking at tickets. Let him go to the wedding. But let him know that there is a problem here. And that your might need to get out of this relationship, spidey senses are tingling. Because he doesn't want you to meet his friends, or he doesn't want his friends to meet you. And that's a problem. Whether you go to a wedding with him ever in your whole life, 
that's a problem. And you want to know what the fuck is up with that. And you have a right. 10 months in and living together and having moved to a new city together, you have a right to some answers on that front. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old heteroflexible woman. I've been kinky for as long as I can remember. Since I was a child, I would masturbate to BDSM fantasies. I think I've been masturbating for seven or eight years before I ever had any type of sexual encounter with another person. I went through a period of shame over my kinks, but now I'm more comfortable than ever about them. My problem is that my imagination usually dishes up elaborate scenarios that outdo anything my partners can concoct, and I require these fantasies to come. I've also come to enjoy vanilla sex, but it's frustrating that I've created such strong associations between unlikely fantasies and coming. Sometimes I just want to be able to come during vanilla sex or or during mildly kinky sex without removing my mind to some imaginary scenario. I'm not ashamed of my kinks. I just want to, to not feel shackled or limited by them. I want to feel present during sex. You say your fantasies are elaborate. You don't say your fantasies are impossible. Some people want to sleep with centaurs, and centaurs don't exist and aren't a thing. Some people want to have master-slave relationships on space stations in some other galaxy, which is not currently an option. But if your fantasies are merely elaborate, you can't live an elaborate fantasy 24 hours a day. Probably not something can happen once a week. But if you find a partner who loves you and someone whose fantasies overlap or is willing to indulge you in your fantasies, you can get involved in a kink community and you'd be surprised how kink communities can rally around someone's elaborate fantasies and help to make them happen. Or how, if you want to not involve other people in your fantasy life or your sex life, how one person who's really committed to another person can help them not have that elaborate fantasy scenario unfold every weekend, but pick a weekend at, you know, six months out or a year out and do a whole bunch of advanced planning and lay in the gear or the goats or whatever it is that you need to make it happen for you. And you have that to look forward to. And you have your partner then to be grateful to and for for helping to make that happen for you. So don't make this a choice between partnered sex or mostly vanilla sex and your elaborate fantasies. You can have regular, often leaning vanilla sex with a partner who every once in a while, the two of you together, work on stage, stage manage, execute your elaborate fantasy scenario. And when you're having vanilla sex with someone who knows what your elaborate fantasy scenarios are like and enjoys them, there is nothing not in the moment about having vanilla sex and talking about dirty talking about your elaborate fantasies, not the sex you'd rather be having right now instead, but the sex that you two who are having sex right now are going to have together in the future. And you can crank each other up about it. So folding your elaborate fantasy scenarios, dirty talk about those elaborate fantasy scenarios into sex with a partner who helps to make those elaborate fantasy scenarios a reality every once in a while that's how you bring the two sides of your sex life, the two sides of your erotic imagination and your libido together and integrate them. And you're not the only person out there who has a fantasy, elaborate or not, a go-to fantasy that their junk pretty much requires to unspool in their head to get off. That can make people feel like they're not in the moment. 
But what are you going to do? If that's what you need, that fantasy to get off in the moment, you're going to go there. If you don't want to feel like you're disassociating, if you don't want to feel like you're leaving the room and abandoning your partner and sort of walling yourself off and squeezing your eyes shut to have your fantasy while this other person provides you with some physical stimulus, fantasize aloud with someone who enjoys your fantasies as much as you do. And then you are going to have both the combo platter partnered sex where you're present and in the moment with your partner and also your fantasy scenario unspooling through dirty talk with another human being so you can get off. Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. Mid-30s cisgendered straight male on the American East Coast here. My question is a two-parter, both parts about kink exploration and etiquette. Recently, my spouse gave me permission to explore something I've wanted my whole life. I want to offer physical relief to pregnant women by massaging their feet, legs, back, shoulder, the whole nine yards, totally free of charge. I am a practiced masseuse from years back, but have since moved into a different career. First problem, other than scammy hookup sites like Pregnant Hookup, I'm having trouble finding a site or an app to begin my search. Where do I seek out, I guess, kinky pregnant women or pregnant women willing to indulge a kink? Second problem, I doubt I'll get returning clientele. So long-term hookups seem logically out of the question. Once the baby arrives, they want to move on. They want to take care of the baby. I wish them the best. But let's say someone does accept. How do I present myself as professional, respectful, and discreet? Should I just put myself out there as a specialty masseuse and keep my mouth shut about how hard I'm getting? Or should I scrounge through the kink community with my freak flag flying so both my clientele and I know what I'm aiming to do, provide much-needed physical relief while getting off mentally. Oh, my gosh. All right. I feel like I'm going to get in trouble for this. But this may, your problem, your desired scenario, may fall under the header of permissible secret perving. Not that I would want to be a pregnant woman with a masseuse who was secretly perving on me, but usually no one wants to be secretly perved on, which is why secret perving is only permissible when it's undetectable. The example, of course, I always use is the foot fetishist and shoe fetishist who works in a high-end shoe store putting high, expensive high heels on pretty ladies and then goes home and beats off about it. So long as none of the women that he's serving in his capacity work in retail at the shoe store can perceive that this is turning him on and it's their subjective feelings about his performance that matter, not what he thinks he's presenting. You know, if he thinks he's being calm and cool, but he comes across as a drooling, panting pervert when he's putting their shoes on, then, then it's a problem and the perving ain't secret and it's not been permissible. But if he can keep it together and then later on goes home at night and beats off about all the women that he put shoes on that day, permissible secret perving, what are you going to do? Is it involving someone in your kink without their consent and that's not okay? Yeah, I guess so. But there's a lot of that that goes on in the world. Think of the guy wearing panties and a male chastity device and out to dinner with his wife and he is secretly perving on the fact that there's all these people in the room and under his clothes he's wearing these crazy things. And if, oh my God, if everybody knew, he's secretly perving. He's involving a restaurant full of people and a bar full of people in his kink without their consent but without their knowledge. And in no way that impacts them. And the perving is secret and therefore permissible. So you could, I guess, 
hang out a shingle and say that you're a masseuse who specializes in pregnant women and pregnant women need massages. Their feet ache, their backs ache, and you might pull together a clientele. So long as your touch is professional, so long as your demeanor is professional, what goes on between your ears is your business. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Stealing Zen tweets, sad that I will probably never be able to call into the Savage Lovecast because I've been listening to that fake Dan Savage so long, I already know what he'd say to any issues my boring ass would have. I would encourage you to call anyway. You never know. And sometimes it's nice to be told to do what you already know you need to do, so do feel free to call. Juliet tweets, wouldn't call myself a kinkster, but always love hearing Mistress Matisse on the Savage Lovecast. So smart and funny. Thank you, Dan, for having her on. We love having Mistress Matisse on. She's been a regular guest going back to the first months of the Savage Lovecast, and we will have her on again in the future. And finally, Danielle Fillet tweets, loved Fake Dan Savage's take on the straight pride parade today on the Savage Lovecast. What do you have to be proud of if you're not doing something to improve the lives of your fellow heterosexuals? And of course, an important footnote here, harming the lives of homosexuals does nothing to improve the lives of heterosexuals. As I said on the top of the show, you can improve the lives of heterosexuals by fighting for universal basic income, for access to birth control, for access to abortion services, for fully funded child care. There's all sorts of ways heterosexuals could be out there fighting to improve the lives and lots of heterosexuals and everybody else too. But they're not. The haters are marching in Boston to hurt gay people. Not to help straight people, and that's nothing to be proud of. All right, now your response calls. Hey, Dan, this is a impact bottom on the East Coast. My comment is for the other impact bottom who uh, had the question on the most recent SM show about not being able to be bruised anymore after a long time of uh, going about the BDSM scene. This has happened to me as well. Me and my master looked into it, and Mistress Matisse was totally right. It's uh, He calls it leather arse, and basically your body just adapts to the beatings that you're taking. Uh, our workaround for that, because of course I was also very upset for losing my bruises that I love as well, is that we did introduce Kane too, and at first I hated it, and I still kind of do, but you know, they do leave their marks. And we've just progressed into me being able to take harder and longer beatings. And it's just basically you need to find a workaround for it. We also find that I do bruise in other areas, you know, my inner thighs, biting on the tits. It's not just your ass that can take a bruise. So safely find other places where you can have those. Hi, this is a response call to the recent S&M episode calling because uh, I'm a doctor, and I, I don't think that the advice to take aspirin so that you bruise more easily uh, is, is good advice. If you're taking enough aspirin that you're going to cause bruising, then you might be causing yourself to bleed in other places that you don't want to, especially when you're engaging in uh, BDSM activities. So uh, just something to think about if you're taking aspirin to bruise more easily. Hi, I'm calling in response to the guy who called in and thought it might be a good idea to use women as pawns and ultimately watching Republicans making abortion bans and watching Republicans crash and burn. I don't want to ridicule this guy too much because I'm glad he's at least engaging. But dude, did you even run this idea by any woman? 
why don't we do this? Because more of us will lose our bodily autonomy and then potentially die. So uh, we need men to be feminists with us, but goddamn, we also need them to do it better. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064. Hey, kinksters, do you want to see more sex-positive representations of you and your community? Make a film for my Dirty Little Film Festival, Hump. I'm looking for all kinds of kinky films, from hardcore bondage to fun BDSM roleplay and everything in between. All of it, including vanilla sex, has a place at Hump. Show us, share with us your consensual kinks, and there's a chance you will get into the festival. And if you get into the festival, there's a chance you will win part of the $20,000 in cash prizes, including the $10,000 Best of the Show Award. And if your film makes it into the festival and goes out on tour, you get a percentage of every single ticket sold on the Hump Tour. For more information, go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. You can follow the Naturist Living Podcast on Twitter at Naturist Living, and you can find your way to more of Stefan Deshane's work through at Naturist Living on Twitter. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.